a film podcast this is brian here and i've got dan with me hey brian how's it going hey doing okay we're in the midst of a theme month if you tuned in last time you might know that this is young adult literature adaptation month i think we shortened it to yam young adult month that's that's my shorthand at least yeah we're going yam that was what we settled on yeah rolls off the tongue a little bit and so this was a, a month that Dan pitched. The rule is the movies that we're talking about have to be based on novels targeted at young adults. And so what was the definition that we used last time, Dan, just off the top of your head? What, what are the key aspects of a young adult? Yeah, so young adult is a publishing term that typically refers to books targeted at ages 12 to 18. and Typically, as a result, the protagonists are teenagers, but anything that's at that, that age level, 12 to 18, so you're talking about seventh grade up through graduation of high school, is young adult. According to Teddy, one of the co-hosts of the Buzzed On Movies podcast, some people pronounce Y-A-Ya. We've not said that yet, and I thought we should bring it up. Also wanted to bring up I don't think they've ever once shouted out the goods on Buzzed On Movies, aside from the crossover episodes we did. I think we need to plant that idea. I think we need to get our names out there some more. Yeah. P ping him. We, we're buddies with him. We're hashtag adding him. Yeah. <laughs> we had uh, one of Matt's reviews as the review of the week uh, a few weeks ago, so we've given them some love. It's time they return the favor. That's right. Reciprocation. Reciprocity. We're all about that here at The Goods. <laughs> <laughs> all right. But you might be wondering, what specific book-based movie will we be talking about tonight? Well, it is called Read It and Weep, and it comes to us from 2006 via the Disney Channel, because this is a DCOM, short for a Disney Channel original movie. Now, we've covered a few of these in our time here on The Goods. Some of our featured films have included the entirety of the High School Musical franchise. We've also talked Zombies 1 and 2 from 2018 and 2020. Interestingly enough, Read It and Weep is directed by the same guy as the Zombies films. This is Paul Hone. And it's a little less remarkable because his entire filmography has been DCOMs, but... I think it's still kind of interesting to see how his work has developed in the 12 plus years between Read It and Weep and the Zombies series. Yeah, I didn't see any connection whatsoever at first. Read It and Weep get, has its slightly weirder moments. And then I was like, okay, I could see how this is someone who is once again pushing at the fringes of what a DCOM can be. It's not as boundary pushing as the zombies movies are but there's a little bit of that here yeah it's got some flavor definitely this is not like as edgy as some young adult lit but i think it's notable that the film is actually about a person writing a young adult book like the, the whole premise is about writing ya 
I'm not going to say yeah. You can say it, but I'm not going to say yeah. I've, I don't. I think Teddy made that up, or Teddy's mom. I've never heard that before, but we can roll with that if that's the way you want to go. Uh, it doesn't need to be a feature. We're we're going to be here for a while, so we got to keep some common ground. <laughs> but this film is based on the novel How My Private Personal Journal Became a Bestseller, written by Julia DeVillers. I think they made a smart decision in shortening the title, making it pop a little more. I'm not wild about read it and weep, though. I, I feel like that doesn't really capture the essence of the story. Well, you, you read it, and then there is unrest. It's, it causes scandal. I don't know if anyone is weeping, but it's like the story is out there now, and there are repercussions, so. Yeah, I suppose. I think it works all right. It's just It's just not as on the nose or as wordy as how my private personal journal became a bestseller. Yeah. So this kind of subgenre, do we want to talk about what the book is a little bit here? Yeah, so Dan has made it his mission to track down the books as well. For this one, I was definitely considering it. I I didn't go that extra mile. I'm sorry, guys. I let you down. I will say that this one is out of print and also not on ebook, any ebook store that I saw. So unlike probably everything else we'll pick, it's it's not easily digitally acquired. So I had to find a used seller that would deliver it in two days so that I had a few days to read it. But I did manage to find one and I read it. I actually finished it today. So there's kind of a whole subgenre of young adult novels where the titles are very verbose and like falsely formal, but also kind of silly. So something I consider in the similar boat, although definitely on the older target audience range, is the British book Angus Thongs and Full Frontal Snogging. So they do like these verbose titles. And I've, I've typically seen them targeted towards girls rather than boys. Although it's kind of a funny story, which was our selection last week is kind of verbose as well so I don't yeah know. it's like verging into that territory yeah this film has a personal resonance with me and it did back when it came out in 2006 i alluded to this in my commentary last episode when we were kicking off the month because the author of it's kind of a funny story ned vizzini note in his earlier biography was that he had one honorable mention in the scholastic writing awards well in my freshman year of high school i wrote an essay for my english class that the teacher sent in to the scholastic writing awards and i got a golden key which is the first bit of recognition they give you they they mail you a little like it like back in the day when kids could go up to the cockpit of the airplane you know, pre-9-11, and the, the pilot would give you a little, like, pin with wings on it. That's basically what this golden key looks like. And then my essay progressed to the next level, which was the national consideration, and I got a silver medal at that level for humor, humor writing. So for that, they did an awards ceremony at Carnegie Hall in New York City, and I went up there, and Rosie O'Donnell gave out the medals. Wow. That's wild, dude. 
That's out of control. Yeah, very surreal. And that was in um, spring of 2005. So spring of my freshman year. Spring 2005. Yeah, still still fresh in my mind when this one came out in, in 2006. So you watched this one when it debuted. That's correct. That's right, because I got cable for the first time when I was in high school. And I had this little CRT television in my room and would just kind of leave it on in the background, whatever else I was doing. So I like consumed a lot of cable television in a short span when I was in high school, just kind of absorbing it passively. Right. And a, a lot of that was DCOMs. So older ones, newer ones. And I did see some premieres and I, I, I may have seen this premiere, uh, but I, I saw it a couple times because it's like when they come out new, they play them all the time. So, yeah, I figure like once a week or something. Yeah, it's like at the time I saw it a few times. So obviously, to the extent that you either don't recall or would prefer not to share, that is fine. So do you remember your your silver medal winning? Was it like a portfolio of writing or was it a specific piece that won this award? It was a specific piece. It was called Embodiment of a Geek, and it was sort of a personal narrative, self-deprecating humor piece. And I also read it for the Scholastic website, and there was like a video that you could still access up until pretty recently. I think you could dig it up. I don't know if it's still out there. All right, listeners, after some cursory digging, I have tracked down one of numerous copies i still have of the best teen writing of 2005 a compilation from the alliance for young artists and writers selected recipients from the scholastic art and writing awards so the the piece was called embodiment of a geek i think it was like you know the the five paragraph essay probably like four or five pages long and there's a, a few pages worth published here in the book, maybe it's the whole thing. It, it looks a little shorter than that, but uh, here is just uh, a snippet. It's chic being geek. Geeks built the space shuttle and the PC. They made the toaster and the light bulb, the internet and the atomic bomb. Without geeks, Western civilization as we know it could not exist. Few people realize it, but Pythagoras was probably the first geek. He had a math mafia. When he and his elite, learned cohorts discovered the fifth digit of pi, he had his boys send the squealers to sleep with Poseidon. Fortunately, the secret got out eventually, and Don Pythagoras's mob boss days came to a premature demise, and the godfather of Greece was remembered instead as the father of the triangle. I don't even remember writing that. <laughs> this is good stuff, man. You got a, you got a gift. At least 13-year-old you had a gift. 14 year old whoever what it was yep yeah thereabouts let's see what else i got here i want something that gives a little bit more of the flavor what is geekdom geekdom is a way of life a plane of existence it encompasses those souls unafraid to break the mold of the everyday the mundane the humdrum geekdom is freedom people who make plants grow saran wrap or make motorcycles from matchsticks or speak fluent Elvish, or analyze the anatomies of Vulcans versus Klingons. Three-dimensional chess, Dungeons and Dragons, the Sci-Fi Channel, 
memorizing all the documented phobias, knowing the words to each and every Monty Python skit by heart. That is geekdom. That is the world in which I live. That captures it a little more. There you go. That's cool. I, I like the flavor of it. I would have given you a key. Hey, thank you. And so for that, I got flown out to New York. I mean, I'm sure that my family had to pay for the ticket, but I went up there with my dad and had a whirlwind couple days in New York. And my dad kind of laid it out of like, okay, this is your trip. What do you want to do? And I said, I want to see Phantom of the Opera on Broadway. And so that's what we went and did because I finally got to see Phantom. Cool. And uh, yeah, proud moment. Good trip. And it relates, I promise, to the film at hand. <laughs> uh, would you agree? Uh, yes, I would say so. In multiple ways. I mean, I would say in multiple ways, in part knowing that you did not go on to a long career of of, of having published fiction as the main source of your time spent professionally and source of income professionally. Yeah. True. Not yet, at least. It could happen. More more geekish chic stuff, you know? Right. So, w one thing we did in previous theme months that I thought might be fun here is a topic of the week. And since you were talking about what you wrote, it's I suppose what you wrote is not strictly young adult literature, but in the theme of stuff that we've wrote, I was going to also share... Some some of what I've written. Oh, awesome. What did you bring? So I have it here, and I guess I could read it, but I wrote three YA novel manuscripts in my 20s. In 2012, 2013, and 2014, each year I wrote one. So in 2012, I wrote one called Hungry Heart. And... The premise of that one is you're not you're going to just be blown away by this, Brian. It's just you're not going to process that I could have done this. It's a story about a guy and a guy's best friends with a girl. And he doesn't realize that his best friend is in love with him. And uh, he thinks that he's got a shot with the more popular girl. And then he ends up realizing that his best friend's in love with him and they end up together. So. Truly groundbreaking stuff. Yeah. So that that was the first one I wrote. Um, that was the only one I ever really got around to editing in a state that I actually shared it with people outside of the, my siblings and spouse. And then in 2013, I wrote a a draft of a novel entitled Dear Percy, Dear Ty. And it was a epistolary novel in that it was written via letters and very, very loosely inspired by my own life in the sense that um, my wife and I, when we were in high schools, we would write letters to each other. And that is the way that we sort of got to know each other before we were even dating. And it's alternating perspectives, uh, two characters writing letters to each other and kind of seeing their lives and the way they interact. And then the third one I wrote is called the Knights Busted Open. And so if you're paying attention, that's two Bruce Springsteen references out of three among these three novels of, as far as the titles go. Oh, man. And here I thought you came up with that. I was going to say that's a great title. but No, it's a line from 
Thunder Road by Bruce Springsteen. The night's busted open. These two lanes will take us anywhere. And uh, the premise of that one is it is a sort of anthology, not exactly an anthology, but kind of an anthology novel. I never quite finalized how I would have sequenced it, but basically eight novellas, like shortish stories that, but long enough to have their own chapters that all interlock together and uh, all take place on the night of a school homecoming dance. I think it was homecoming and not prom and the way that people's kind of lives and destinies interacted there. And I was kind of proud of all three of them and they were all kind of fun, but I never got around to doing anything with them. But, and you know, I, I wrote little bits of stuff here and there, but those were the three most complete things I ever wrote. So I think at some point I dreamed of being a little more serious about trying to become a YA author. And I've always been a DIY bootstrapped kind of guy. Like I never really thought I would have had a shot at being traditionally published, but at least getting it edited and getting it published, I think is something I could have done at some point. And, you know, I I suppose I'm only in my early thirties. There's something I could, something I could do at some point if I wanted to. That's really cool. I have mad respect for people who write an entire book, whatever form it takes. Well, we had my brother Will on two weeks ago, and I just got my physical copy of his book. And it's really something to physically hold a book in your hand and knowing being there side by side as someone wrote it and seeing hundreds and hundreds of pages of it written out. And it's it's really something it, it makes it come together how much of a, an endeavor it actually is so yeah and on that note one other anecdote about my own writing i wanted to share not exactly writing i guess because i i never wrote out more than a, a few chapters of it but a story i was working on for a long time like it it started taking shape when i was nine years old was a fantasy saga titled the adventures of razor and it's about the the coming of age of a young wizard and the the battle of good versus evil, all that good stuff. Is he a Gryffindor? He's not a Gryffindor. I I don't know. I, I've never put his traits through the Pottermore. <laughs> We'd have to see. But definitely this was a story that I spent a lot of time developing, if not writing down. And it reached its greatest fruition as a card game that I made. And one of the great things about the card game is that anybody could add cards to it. So it kind of had a second and a third life. And we were still playing that like in the halls at TJ, our high school. I love Razor Further Adventures. It's a great card game. Played it a couple times myself. But uh, that was also in my mind when I first watched this film, Read It and Weep, which I promise we are just about to talk about. Just the idea of like a protagonist who's a cooler version of you and and maybe you're walking around thinking, what would Razor do? Yeah. Well, and I think also that, I mean, we'll get to it, but the way that this story is driven by something that the protagonist just kind of offhandedly imagined for years and doodled around and that accidentally became a thing that was spread around the world. I can see Razor being in your mind as you encounter that story and imagining what would happen if Razor got out into the world. Exactly. So jump with us now back to 2006. I guess I could look up the actual date that this came out. 
I'm going to guess it's the springtime, uh, but I am going to confirm that. Oh, original release date, July 21st, 2006. So this was actually during the summer. Perhaps an even better chance that I would have seen it at the time. Read It and Weep tells the story of Jamie Bartlett, who is an introverted high school freshman who is into writing, as you might have guessed. She's played by Kay Panabaker, who was one of, you know, Disney kind of has their stable of young actors that they are cultivating for projects. And I think she popped up in a few things around this time. The project that she's working on, that's kind of her opus, although it's supposed to be private, I guess, like it's not meant to be shared. Maybe at some point in the future, she has intentions of sharing it. But it's this fantasy novel that seems to have a graphic novel component that she's writing and illustrating on a tablet computer she's always carrying around. Looking back, I found it interesting that this was still like four or five years before the iPad. Just all the technology, it's kind of cool. It's like, we talked about this in the Spy Kids episode, which I've been editing, and how some of the technology seemed forward-thinking, and I think that's here too. Uh, also in Snow Day, we talked about that, how they had like video chat and stuff. Yeah, the mom's having full-on Zoom meetings in 2000. 22 years ago, yeah. So it, it definitely feels like, wow, imagine how cool it would be if kids had their own tablets and could doodle on a device, not on a piece of paper. Yeah. But in the first act of the film, like maybe the first 10 or 15 minutes, we're introduced to her school life and her circle of friends. So she's friends with these two girls named Harmony and Lindsay who are involved in activism as kind of a, a personality trait and like a hobby. Uh, Harmony's especially into the art and Lindsay seems to be the one most gung-ho about fighting for causes. Uh, I think her biggest thing is animal rights. That's what keeps coming up. She's got a big uh, animal rights rally planned. And yeah, they're definitely not in love with each other either. Yeah, you made a note about that. I, I wasn't so picking up on that. They do go to prom as a group, quote unquote, together w with no one else. Um, they do say they don't have dates. But I, I was not, I guess I wasn't looking for that specifically, but it could very well be there. No, it's, I mean, it's not that strong. It's it's certainly not, what was the, the thing that you referenced that I think of all the time now? Stand By Me with uh, River Phoenix. <laughs> You can do anything you want, Gordy. It's not quite that level. Uh, I mean, it's a kind of a, at this point, it's like a, a trope, like a, you roll your eyes at it, that anytime there's two characters of the same gender who spend a lot of time together and no romance is mentioned for either of them, that in 2022, people are watching that. And if you're... Uh, someone who's writing reviews on letterbox your your joke is going to be oh my god they were so totally in love and we didn't realize it <laughs> uh, this is a case where you have to read pretty hard into the subtext and stretch quite a bit if you want to take that conclusion but I, i'm kind of kind of joking there so yeah that's fair and the other friend who's in this circle is a guy named connor he's sort of the quiet nice guy archetype and We'll see that perhaps he's waiting in the wings. So in the book, which again, I, I read the book 
And it more or less follows the same arc, but there's a lot of small differences and a few big differences. So one difference is Harmony and Lindsay are the name of the the two best friend characters, but the characters are totally different. Neither of them talk about like uh, animal rights or activism or anything. So Harmony's thing is that she is someone who could be popular, but chooses not to be. And also, for some reason, she it's this whole subplot where she lives in New York half the time, but wishes she didn't have to live in New York half the time, but also has these cool New York City friends. I don't really know why that was a subplot in the book. And Lindsay's plot in the book is that she's fat and she is coming to grips with the fact that she's fat. So there's a whole like fat shaming subplot in that one, too. So that that's what the characters are. But it, I thought it was cool that they kept the same names but they just totally ditched everything that we knew about those characters in the books. Yeah, uh, it sounds like there's like more going on in the book, but maybe not always for the better. And this is just as a complete outsider perspective, only knowing what Dan's told me so far. But like, it sounds like they changed some things to be a little more streamlined and and maybe serve a more coherent purpose. Mm hmm. As one does when you got to deliver a movie that's just over an hour. And also, Connor is a very main character, and he's kind of a, a secondary or tertiary character in the novel. It's like a thing where he just he's always mentioned, but he's doesn't really get prominent things as the book goes along. Interesting. I might have to read this. Uh, I'm not sure it's worth your time. <laughs> I read it in about two hours, so it's about the length of watching a movie, so you could do it. Okay, not too bad. It definitely stuck out to me, though, now, looking back. It's kind of weird having activism. Like, a- activist is a thing you can be, like, a, you know, you could be a rocker kid or a greaser kid, or you could be an activist. Whereas in the the climate, the way things are now activism it's either like on one end it's the thing that you have to do it's like eating breathing sleeping agitating or at the other end of the political spectrum it's like the insidious force that's pulling civilization apart i don't know it's not just a coat that you can put on and take off it's not just oh i'm gonna do my hobby now that's interesting i I see what you're saying it's like it's become a more pervasive thing and it's not just a character type anymore. Right, it's not just a quirk. Right. You you're the cheerleader. No, you're the activist. No, it's it's it doesn't work quite like that. What did you think of uh of K Panna Baker, the the lead actress here? I think she's pretty good overall. What are you hoping I'll say? I like her. I thought she's really good. I think she's better than some of the other kid actors we have here and she, like, carries the movie. It's, it's not a bad performance. Okay, I agree. I'm going to agree with all of those things. That they picked the right person to be the central actor of the film. And I, I buy her as somebody who is introverted and has this project and then has to deal with the ramifications of it being out there. Agreed, yeah. She's got to do a little bit of the Kevin Arnold acting where her face is on screen and she... There's not narration in the background, but she's got to be like the central object of the screen. And there's weird stuff going on in and around her brain as the movie goes along. And she is enough of a presence to do that. 
Right. It gets interesting. The stuff going on around her. Yes. We also meet early on Jamie's parents and they run a struggling mom and pop pizza parlor. Her dad is on a quest to find like the new pizza topping that nobody's thought of. That's going to be the breakout hit pizza topping. This dynamic really reminded me of Holes, which is probably my favorite young adult book turned into young adult movie. I'm not going to bring it up here because I would just give it an eight. I love Holes. I thought it was really well done when they turned it into a film. But in that, Stanley Yelnats's dad is on a quest to cure stinky shoes. He's like an inventor, but the, the project he's laid out for himself is, I guess, like, make odor eaters, which already exist. But that's that's what he's trying to make. And he, so he's trying all these different ingredients throughout the book to deodorize shoes. So he's always tinkering. The, the connection, after I've done my research, feels a little extra apt because the guy who plays the dad in Read It and Weep is the same actor who played Shia LaBeouf's father on Even Stevens. Not not in Holes. There it's Henry Winkler playing Shia LaBeouf's dad. Wait, it is? I don't remember that. Yeah, yeah, the Fonz is Mr. Yelnet. <laughs> so, obviously, as we want to do, we're, we're just being a little freeform here. But these are all things that were in my mind as, as this film was playing. Also interesting, the mom is played by Connie Young, which is not a name that will probably stick out to you, but she was the sister from Troll 2, which blew my mind. I didn't know until just today that that was her. That's crazy. But it's wild. We haven't talked about Troll 2 much on the pod before, but trust that I think about it a lot. <laughs> it's always looping around in your head. Does she... I'm trying to remember what her action is in Troll 2. She does the dance Okay. in front of the mirror. She has the weird boyfriend who has the RV that he's going around in with his friends. That's right. Oh, and she does like the goggles over her face, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. Cut off your little nuts and eat them. <laughs> How many times do you think you've seen Troll 2? At least 15. That's a lot of troll. It It's tapered off a little bit, but like from 2005 to mm, 2012, maybe. It was like at least twice a year in there. So already that's probably getting close to 15. Maybe once every other year since then. So 15 to 20 times, probably. Damn. It's a lot of popcorn. <laughs> Indeed. Cornography. <laughs> And while the world is being introduced, we're getting these little kind of like narrator snippets of things that Jamie is putting into her book that she's working on. And this book tells of the adventures of the incomparable Iz, which seems to be short for Isabella. At least that's what Wikipedia says. But it's always Iz in the movie. It's Isabella in the book as well. And it is pretty clear that this story is just a thinly veiled metaphor for Jamie's own experiences in high school with this protagonist is being envisioned as a 
cooler, more mature version of Jamie herself. I think maybe like the most genius thing that this film does, uh, maybe it's overselling it. I think it's really cool is they cast Kay Panabaker's older sister, Danielle Panabaker, as is. Like, at first, when Jamie is coming up with scenes for the story, we see is pop up from time to time. And it's going to be more frequent as the movie goes along that we see is kind of bleeding into the real world. I don't want to bury the lead. Is is Tyler Durden. I mean, it's, it's straight up. She like starts appearing in reality, not quite in subliminal flashes, but not too far off from that either. Yeah. The only way it's not Tyler Durden is, you know, from the beginning that she's a figment of the imagination, but it, it veers into like Gollum or Green Goblin territory with the way that it's shot and edited, like the camera's jumping around and is will pop up behind her. And then in the next shot, she'll be in front of her. And then we'll get shots where Jamie is just there by herself and talking to the air. Yeah, it's it's like the Tyler Durden scenes when suddenly it'll cut to like a security camera and you see it's just Edward Norton punching himself in the face. And it's like this. So this is a Disney Channel original movie. So it's got like the stock score and just fairly inane banter as we're going along. It's you know, it's a TV movie. It's fine. It's doing its thing. And then, like, all of a sudden, we're, like, having aggressive camera pivots, breaking the 180-degree rule, character hopping around from angle to angle as if they're, like, semi-present in the scene. And I was, like, getting nauseous and a headache. I was like, what is even going on right now? It was, like, some... It, some of these shots are pretty bizarre, and the way that they show is hopping in and out of reality. It, it's It's something. Yeah, it's like Willem Dafoe yelling at himself in the mirror. It is verging into that territory. Oh, yeah. But it's even weirder than that because Willem Dafoe is always both himself and the Green Goblin. So, like, the camera will try to alternate how we see him. But he's always in the same physical space. But in this movie, is does not always occupy the same physical space. Sometimes she's over the left shoulder. Sometimes she's over the right shoulder. Sometimes she's in the corner of the room. And it's like camera's herky-jerkying around a little bit yeah yeah well sometimes it's just jamie sometimes it's just is yeah very interesting i was gonna get more into that as we go that's fine yeah sorry for jumping in because she no she just kind of dominates more and more as things progress but what i wanted to highlight right here is i think it's really cool that the kind of envisioned cooler version of jamie herself is her real world older sister it's kind of cute, actually. Yeah. It's like, what do you aspire to be? Right. And she is a actress in her own right. In fact, she's, I think, more successful than Kay, the, the younger sister and star. Both of them have had a handful of star vehicles, but Kay is no longer acting. But what's the older sister's name? Danielle Panabaker. Yeah, I think she's still acting. I wanted to know more about what happens in this story within the story. They don't give us a lot. We get a few snippets. And what we hear seems to make it fairly clear that, like, someone who picked up this book and was reading it would understand that it took place at a high school. They don't seem to hide that. 
Although there's a bunch of metaphors calling parts of the high school's experience saying that they are similar to elements of a typical fantasy work, like calling nerds wizards and jocks warriors and things like that. But then it's a little more complicated because Iz actually can, like, cast spells. She can zap. Yes, she is always zapping. That's, like, the catchphrase. In the book, it's not zapping, it's snapping instead. I don't know why they switched it, maybe to make it more spell-like. And some more of the characters who exist in the quote-unquote real world also have parallels in this book Jamie's working on. The most prominently highlighted are the mean girl who she interacts with day-to-day, who in the real world is named Sawyer, but in the Is book is named Myrna. And then we also have the cutest boy in school, the taller Zac Efron clone named Marco Vega in the real world, and his storybook counterpart is Marco Vincent. So... Not too subtle there. He's he's more of like a true value Zac Efron. Wish.com Zac Efron. He doesn't have the same charisma and the same face, but... No, no, he doesn't have the presence at all, but he has the same haircut. Yeah, that's true. He's got... He does have the Troy Bolton haircut, that's for sure. I just have to point out here, this actor's name is Chad Broski. <laughs> It's a great name. Like, you couldn't come up with a better character name. Yeah. He is Chad Broski. So the actress who plays the mean girl, Sawyer, did you recognize her? Yes. She's from Drake and Josh. Yeah. I, I didn't know whether or not you knew this. I was, I was so excited when I saw her. I've seen enough Drake and Josh to recognize her, but what was her role in that show? She played Mindy Crenshaw, who is Josh's first rival and then subsequently girlfriend and she is awesome in that show she's really good in this movie too i really liked her her performance here too she jumps out like i feel like if i had not seen drake and josh she would still stand out from the crowd yeah to me i don't know if she would be right for this movie but the charisma she has in this movie is sufficient that she could be a star of a movie like this for sure and she's very snarky and sarcastic. That's the, her presence in general. And the, the famous Drake and Josh moment, there's a lot of good ones with Mindy. Uh, but I think maybe the most memeable one is late in the show's run when they had established her as Josh's steady girlfriend. She says, I love you. And he says, I'll see you in chemistry and slams the door. And it's it's a great moment of... Uh, TV history right there. But I don't know. I I was excited to see uh, a Drake and Josh crossover, even though it was in a different ecosystem of movies and stars. It's not in the Nickelodeon universe. It's in the Disney universe. So, yeah. Allison Scagliotti. I don't know if there's probably a different pronunciation of that. But yeah. But now we hit kind of the inciting incident. It's what's going to move forward the thrust of the plot, introduce some additional conflict, because in English class, 
Jamie gets the assignment that everybody's going to have to submit an essay for a contest. Like, I think the prompt that they're supposed to write about is ways to improve the school. I don't know how clear that's made. That just seems to be the vein of what people are working on. So what ultimately ends up getting submitted, I don't know if it really would pass the rubric. Like, I don't know if it's the assignment that they were given. <laughs> but through, like, a few convoluted hoops and loops and logic jumps, uh, Jamie and her friends are, like, watching a soap opera on TV, and she's kind of idly doodling on her tablet and she manages to well it's it's too complicated but like her printer is broken and so she hits on the idea that she's going to email her document to Lindsay to print at her house but because they're distracted by this tv show she accidentally mails the wrong document and so this is how the personal private journal will ultimately become the bestseller because she inadvertently emails the is manuscript to Lindsay who prints it out and submits it at school. It's a little too complicated. In the book, it's just she emailed the wrong file and that was it. That was all the explanation we got. And it was no, it was just an open-ended, here is my school assignment submission. So... Yeah, but I agree that it it strained a little too hard to make the logistics of this contrivance seem plausible because it certainly did not feel plausible as we were going through it. No, it's it's like a lot of things have to happen. It's kind of like the uh, frog DNA in Jurassic Park. Right. It's like, okay, you introduce this weird element just so you could have things backfire in a specific way. It's like you had an outcome you wanted to arrive at, and you had to do logical jumps to get there. I think it's a good comparison. No Velociraptor is going wild as the outcome of her mistake, unfortunately. Yeah, so that's going to set this one back a little bit. But the story is a big hit, and it ends up winning the contest, so I guess it met the criteria enough. Pretty soon, like an actual real deal publisher reaches out to Jamie and says, hey, we want to turn this into a book. Do you have any additional material to bulk it up? And indeed, she has notebooks and notebooks full. I think we got to note that like part of her consideration seems to be that if she's suddenly commercially successful, it's going to help out her family. Like, her parents aren't the richest. They're trying to make this small business work. And now that she's suddenly drawn attention, it's helping the restaurant. But it's also weird because it's kind of indirect about it. It's like, oh, if she has a book, well, she could sell the books at the pizza shop and the kids will come there. Or she could do a book signing at the pizza shop and kids will come there. Like, no. If you're selling a bestseller book, you get that income into your family. Now you don't need to make money at the the pizza shop to to live because you have that money incoming to your your bank account. That's a good point. The the pizza becomes ancillary. The the pizza can be passive. The money's going to come in either way. This is true. But she does have that additional material to bring in, and soon Iz saves the world 
is a hot new young adult lit sensation. And so Jamie's got to go around and appear on the talk shows and stuff. One of the like alienating features of her new public persona life that distance her friends from her is she's always talking about how she's got a handler now like a public relations assistant this person though is not like obnoxious i think she does her job well and still manages to seem like human i kind of liked this agent person yeah so it occurred to me surprisingly late in the film i was like oh duh that so the handler at some point, it seemed like when she was talking about the handler, she was talking about the agent. But then at some point, it seemed like whenever she was talking about the handler, she was talking about is like her alternate ego thing. Like, oh, my handler will do that. I don't know. Did, did you get the impression that that was kind of like an offhanded way of saying the is slash the celebrity version of me would do that? Or was it always explicitly this this one middle-aged woman who was managing the authorial career of the Jamie. Yeah, I always assumed it was this PR person. Okay. That's an interesting read, though, that it could be this alternate persona who's gradually taking over her life. That's a little more multi-dimensional chess than I think they were thinking of, but I like it. <laughs> okay. Because now Jamie's arc is going to be that she's becoming a fame monster. She's like celebrity life is going to charm her away from her more salt of the earth friends and family. Like to the point that she starts buddy buddying with Sawyer, the mean girl. And like even more famous mean girls such as teen starlet Amber Tiffany, who was the star of that soap opera we glimpsed earlier. So one of my few suggested rewrites that I have for this movie, and when I say few suggested rewrites, that's not to say that this movie is perfect as is, but that I didn't come up with too many rewrites as I was watching. But one of my few suggested rewrites is instead of naming the character is for Isabella, name her am for Amber. And then you can get weird, goofy wordplay about I am am. Well, hold on. Am, I am doing this. Am is doing this. And I feel like that the wordplay works slightly better than if you have her be is. It still seems contrived to me. Know that they do try doing that with is at one point. She, I think it's am I is? Is she? Is isn't? Or something like that. It's convoluted, but... I think you could argue it adds to like <laughs> a sense of mental breakdown. <laughs> like there are multiple times because as she, Jamie is becoming more famous is, is Tyler Durdening more and more of her life and just coming out more and being present in the scenes more. And it leads to some just straight up schizophrenic weirdness. Yeah. It leans into it more and more. They, they make it clear that people hear her and even see her talking to herself and like jerking around. I enjoyed that it leaned more and more into this weirdness as the movie went. Oh, totally. I think this is the best thing that the film does. Yeah, I agree. Just having these Gollum Smeagol stuff. So I don't know why as soon as 
Amber, was it Amber Tiffany? As soon as she was mentioned, I just assumed it was Miley Cyrus. I don't know why I did, but I just assumed it was. But I guess Hannah Montana didn't debut for a couple of years after this. I think that was too. Well, no, hold on. It was right around the same time, 2006. Yeah, I, I think it's like a Miley stand-in. Okay. I, I think this is, that because that's what my mind immediately jumped to, too, is, oh, she's meeting Hannah Montana. But it's it's a different actress, but I think that's the level of stardom we're, we're meant to perceive. Right. And she does kind of look like her. Right. Props to the celebrity names. I like Amber Tiffany, and then the guy that she's with is Ryder Donovan. Yeah, one thing the book adds is like a whole ensemble of celebrity characters. And part of the takeaway is, well, celebrities are kind of people too. Some of them are nice, some of them are mean, but also they're all collectively a little bit shallow. It doesn't really click, but I, I do like that it has all these celebrities and it did pull the two best names, which were Amber and what was it? Ryder Donovan. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I can see how her rise to fame and that pulling her away from her friends would be alienating. But I do think we have to bear in mind that in some ways, a rising ship lifts all boats. And especially in regards to her family, like making additional money is going to help them stay afloat. So in a way, it's like the thing you brought up when we watched Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas a month or so ago where at what point do you betray your friends if it's going to help your family? Oh, when I said that he should throw the contest when he thinks his mom is going to win. Right. You said he should throw the contest because he they're in a talent show and one of the acts is Emmett and his friends and one of the act is the mom. And you said, well, if the mom could win the grand prize and have it just for herself, that's ultimately going to help the family. So he should throw his friends under the bus. And I've thought about that since you said it. I was kind of against that when you brought it up. But it's almost like, do you steal to feed your family? Like, does your family take preeminence over anybody else in your life? And you're probably right that they do. So hard to say. But what I'm trying to get at is like the decisions she's ultimately going to have to make about do I become this famous celebrity writer who may seem cold and callous to people outside the bubble, but with the knowledge that I have these people in my life who I'm helping. Yeah. One thing I learned, uh, I don't know, remember where I learned this, but like a rule of thumb is getting onto the New York times bestseller, which at least explicitly happens in the book. And in the movie, it makes clear that this is like a big deal bestseller being a New York times bestseller is approximately equivalent to the income required to purchase a house. So like if you're dealing with that, and especially if you're getting like up to number one and stuff, that is life changing amounts of money. And I feel like this movie and the book don't properly appreciate how that would impact her family. Like that's, it's a life changing amount of money. Totally. But her friends are starting to feel her being pulled away. Although they have like ultimate goals that they're they're still clinging to the hope that Jamie is going to pull through and deliver outcome X. So for Harmony and Lindsay, what they 
are building towards is this animal rights rally they have planned and they're hoping that Lindsay will come and be like the guest of honor and in so doing draw more attendance and attention and then connor what he wants well he's the friend in the wings secretly crushing on the protagonist so sort of the dan trope although what dan has specifically brought to the table time and again is where it's a male protagonist and he's got a female best friend who's interested in him and he's the oblivious one yeah it's the gender flip version right which i kind of feel like might be more common irl it i don't know it certainly feels different when the genders are swapped no i i think you're right that it's more common from the alternate perspective for a few reasons we don't need to necessarily delve in deep into my theory of that right now but i i agree that this it has a slightly different feel and it just feels a little more natural i would say or plausible or something i don't know right early on like halfway through the movie this group of friends is talking about a dance that's coming up i don't know if it's the end of the school year but it's going to be the climactic event of the movie got to have a school dance at the end of your high school film Back to the Future did it, and so as far as I'm concerned, you always got to have that. Enchantment Under the Sea, too. It's always got to be Enchantment Under the Sea. And sure enough, that's what we get here, because it's going to be a sea-themed dance. This is where I want to shout out another DCOM, which is 2008's Minutemen. It's about time travel. It actually stars Jason Dolly, who plays Connor here mm. in that film. He's the lead. I learned it was shot at the same high school and that one ends with a fifties themed school dance. So like very explicitly drawing on back to the future there less so here, but I mean, come on, it's, it's under the sea themed. So I think somebody was putting that together. I think so too. I mean, it's an under the sea dance. That's if that's the theme, then it's gotta be on the mind back to the future. But they agree that they're going to go as a group if nobody asks them as a date. So Connor's thinking, great, I'm in. I didn't have to do the hard thing of actually using my words, but it's working out in my favor because we're all going to be there together. So to secure a ride to the dance, Connor butters up his big brother and like says that he's going to do his chores for him and everything. This brother, to me, seems really old. <laughs> like, mid-30s. Oh, that's your take, okay. I Well, what what is your take? He just, to me, seems old. He seems, like, really big and mature, Well, except that he's, like, having Jason Dolly do his laundry. And <laughs> the one that I think is really funny is he says, you have to clean my iguana tank. <laughs> We never see the iguanas, but at one point, Connor is grousing. He says, do you know how many iguanas I bathed? <laughs> so my read is that this is like a 32-year-old still living at home with multiple iguanas. <laughs> He's the iguana guy. That's it. Yeah. Who owns a truck? Yeah. Uh, that's pretty funny. That's what he's got going for him is he has a pickup. But what what was your read? I mean, I thought he was like a 
college dropout who's taking a semester off before he goes back to community college. I thought it was like 23 or something. Okay. That's plausible. But who knows? He's got enough money to buy a truck. So I don't know. There's okay. Hold on a second. So I was researching the DVD viewing options for this. I ended up streaming it on Disney plus, but I wanted to make sure there was not a director's commentary. And there was a special edition release called the zapped edition which is the action that is does when she is fighting back against the tyranny of bullies or whatever she zaps them. So the zapped edition is the special edition, but it doesn't have a director's commentary, which I was going to listen to if it was there, but it does have deleted scenes. And I want to know if any iguanas appeared in the deleted scenes. Like I got to know what are the deleted scenes here? (laughs) Man, I hope there is an iguana cut. The iguana cut. (laughs) Uh, But, I mean, the older sibling that we have to compare him to in the film, I mean, I guess there's Danielle Panabaker as, like, the shadow sibling. But Jamie has an older brother, too, whose name is Lenny. And I buy that Lenny is, like, an older high school student. But what were your Lenny thoughts, Dan? Lenny's got some weird energy. He's got, I don't know, like... Just some aggressive energy about him. There was one scene where I knew it wasn't going to happen. Like, it never consciously thought this was going to happen. But where, like, they're arguing and he gets up and he marches towards her. I was like, oh, my God, he's going to kiss her. Like, that was what my. (laughs) That was like what was going through my brain. Oh my God. That's not what I thought you were going to say. Like, yell at her, maybe like in a. (laughs) extreme case like hit her or something but kiss her well we know that that's on dan's mind if you've listened to the gravity falls episode (laughs) uh but then just throughout the movie he's just moody now i will say so his thing is he's a guitar player he's a musician and the movie like three times does a thing that i liked every single time even though it's so stupid where it seems like it's doing the cheesy ass tv movie score and then it, we see him playing guitar, the older brother, and then he stops playing. And then the music stops. It was, he was the source of the music. It's like the weird diegetic thing that we were talking about with High School Musical, where it's not clear if the music is in-universe or not in-universe. But he also just has like a weird intensity about him that my joke to Brian was, this guy seems like he would be a school shooter. Like, I, at any point... If you had casted him and we need to talk about Kevin or something like that, I wouldn't have blinked twice at that. Like if there had been a weird, really controversial decom starring this guy, that he would have been the guy to star in it. Yeah, that I definitely agree with. He's got that like Ezra Miller energy or like the dude who plays young Dexter. He just hangs out in his room all the time, angrily playing the guitar alone or like broodingly playing. But kind of the angle is that he too has creative talent that he keeps to himself and will he have a chance to blossom the way that Jamie has and the Jamie and her friends kind of mutter that oh he never plays for anybody will he ever play for anybody we'll see by the end of this Disney Channel original movie (laughs) stay tuned 
it's around this time, obviously, that is is coming more and more to the forefront and like starting to take over. This is like the Project Mayhem stage. Suddenly, Tyler's calling the shots and unnamed Edward Norton can't rein it in anymore. One interview that's notable, Jamie's on TV and all of her friends are tuned in and she somewhat inadvertently blurts out that the characters in her book are stand-ins for people in her real life, which I guess not everybody had picked up on yet. This was really stupid to me. It's like, oh, I said the wrong name. I said Sawyer instead of Myrna. And now, just because of that one mistake, now the entire school is like, oh my god, everyone here is secretly us. Who could have thought that? How could we not see that the popular boy named Marco is actually the popular boy named Marco? Oh my god, we have to hate her now. This is some bullshit, dude. This doesn't make any sense. How could you not see that? And and then everybody turns against her. Sorry to spoil it here as you're about to talk about it. Oh yeah, wow. This one girl who's rich and famous did one slightly mean thing. Yeah, I'm sure that everybody would totally abandon her because the one rich and famous girl did one thing that some people interpreted as mean. It's like, I don't know. This was a little rang a little bit hollow to me. You're right. Because that is the very next thing that happens is like 90% of everyone is scandalized. But Marco is into it. I like this. <laughs> Team Marco. Yeah, Marco is charmed. And so he ends up asking her to the dance. And I just really like that he is very into the idea of them essentially being the people in the book. He's like, well, I'm Marco, so you're Iz, and we're just going to live the life of the characters in the book. He's he's going to be the groupie. He's going to be like the obsessed fan that you would meet at a convention. I, I don't know. Uh, this appeals to me. Like a very dark part of me. <laughs> he, he's the guy who, oh, you know who he is? Uh, sorry, this this might be a little too personal. He's the, the woman in uh, the Rock of Fire explosion who dated uh Aaron Fector for a long time exactly yeah he's the person that maybe you hope that you run into yeah she was certainly hoping for it Jamie that is right because he's dollar store Zac Efron dollar 25 yeah she'd been crushing on him from the start of the movie specifically because early on he read a poem to the English class that she was very into about how he's like secretly pining for a girl that he hasn't confessed his feelings to. And so not only is he ruggedly handsome, but he has the soul of a poet. Mm -hmm. So now he's asked her to the dance. And so everything's coming up roses, except obviously that foiled Connor's plans because now he's bathed all these iguanas for nothing. <laughs> Talk about like weird camera angles but the way this is set up, Connor is lying on the floor under Marco and Jamie when Marco asks her out. Right. Like, this is like some weird cuckold fan fiction. <laughs> like, wait in the closet while the affair is happening. But he's, he, I mean, he's there. He's physically, like, pinned underneath them. So the in-story premise is that he realizes that 
Jamie has a shot with Marco and he's like, oh, my God, I need to actually ask her to the dance to make this real. And so he's racing to do it before Marco does. And he's like on the verge of doing it, but he gets squashed by Marco and Marco asks her before Connor can actually confess his feelings and then everything's ruined. But yeah. Well, he gets squashed by Iz. Oh, is it is? She reaches out with like her high heeled boot and pins him down. Oh, man. Which is extra weird because, again, she's Tyler Durden. Yeah. She's like not physically there. So I don't know if Jamie did this or what, but definitely psychologically interesting. So now here we have the stage set for the finale. We've got this sea-themed school dance for which Harmony and Lindsay have done the decorations. They have this scheme where I don't understand why, but they want to, like, do the prank from Carrie, where they've loaded up this whale with seaweed, like rancid seaweed, and they're ready to dump it on the dance at the proper moment. So we know that, and the only characters who do are Harmony and Lindsay. I did not recognize it as seaweed at first. I thought it was like actually rancid rotting fish at first. Did they explicitly say it was seaweed or were we supposed to just recognize it? Because I was like, wow, this is going to take a dark turn if they're like spilling fish guts out onto the people. Didn't that happen in a Simpsons episode or something? Oh, yeah. But you're right. Maybe it's just that I've seen it so many times. But they just kind of hold up a bucket like, let's put this in. And like, I... I didn't buy the sudden malice. Like, I guess they feel wronged because nobody came to the protest, but like they're going full like weather underground here. It's the it's the activist group turning violent. Well, I mean, not exactly violent, but like just dark, a dark turn, as you said. Right. It's like they're being very aggressive and in your face about the activism and like not just that, but. We're going to dump stinky things on people. No, Nobody wants stinky things dumped on them. They're not going to win friends. That's not the, the route to the heart. Stinky things, not the way to go. No, much less on the fancy night. Exactly. People are dancing under the sea. Yeah. But Jamie does go to the dance with Marco. She's chafing at the fact that he keeps calling her is. Brian's into it, though. I, I like it. I, I'd i be on board. Whatever ladies out there want to start calling Brian Razor, it'll go over. Yeah, go go ahead. It's it's encouraged in certain situations. So Jamie is kind of starting to become disillusioned because, as we've said, like most of the people have rejected her over this scandal that, oh, she represented us as hollow, shallow versions of ourselves in her book. But then she even loses some of the luster on Marco because he admits that he never wrote that poem at the start of the movie, that he had Connor write the assignment for him. This is weird to me because what did Connor get out of that arrangement? Like, did he pay him to do the homework? It's unclear, but I guess they've had this Cyrano thing going where Connor was the words and Marco was the pretty face, but we don't learn anything, I don't think, about how this came about. 
Yeah, it's not clear why Connor was responsible for it. The book is even weirder about it because there is still a poem and Jamie still latches onto the poem, but the poem isn't written by Connor. It, the poem is written by some other rando who bought it off the internet. It it has no connection to the actual fate of Jamie's heart. So after I had seen the movie and I read the book, I was like, that is really stupid, even stupider than the movie. But no, I agree. It doesn't make sense why this would happen, but it at least sets up very clearly the premise that the two people who are truly destined for each other are Jamie and Connor and that the things that she had been longing for had been Connor's all along. So I was able to hand wave the implausibility just to uh, buy into to Jamie and Connor here. Right. As you've called it, it's the love epiphany. And so, yeah, she is going to end up dancing with Connor, but not before she runs to Lindsay and Harmony and triggers this whale bomb that deluges everyone with the stinky sea stuff. Like in bombs. It's like launching out at people. Like the, you know, they're they're coming around dropping missiles on people of stinky seaweed. Yeah, there's multiple like projectile attacks from this thing. It's like tactile. Whoever did this, give them a scholarship to MIT. They're gonna be building the weapon systems for the military contractors in twenty years. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not off base to say that this has some of the same feeling as like the the blood dump from Carrie, but uh, it's not quite there. But it just it's a weird way to have your climax end when it's like a, a romance. Agreed. Not too much stinky seaweed in most of my romantic encounters. <laughs> it takes all kinds, though. But uh Jamie, now that she's reconciled with the crowds, brings this whole big throng of people from the party back to the pizza place. And her parents, who had been grappling with, you know, because this scandal came about, suddenly the people aren't coming around to eat pizza anymore. Uh, but now here they are. Here's all the high schoolers. And they're covered with seaweed. And when they come in, some of this drops onto the pizza. And so now... We finally have the breakthrough hit ingredient and the Bartlett's pizza has been boosted to prominence. So it's like one final check mark on the success ladder, one final bit of resolution development. One thing I think worth mentioning that happens just before this, while we're still at the dance is after everything turns back happy. And Jamie ditches her is persona, connects with Connor, reconnects with her friends. She's like, oh, and somebody's about to come perform a song on the stage. I wonder who that'll be. And it's her brother. So and then also immediately Marco is dancing with Sawyer again. So the order is restored. Right. Well, they had a thing earlier on that we didn't even talk about, but like they start out the movie together. So and in the book, there's this whole elaborate thing where. The reason that Marco is dating Jamie is like this elaborate thing set up by Sawyer to boost Marco's fame, which will subsequently boost Sawyer's fame because Marco will dump Jamie and hook up with Sawyer. And now Sawyer's in the celebrity couple 
And it doesn't really make any sense. And I'm glad that the movie ditched this plot thread. Yeah, to me, again, I haven't read it, but it sounds like they took things from the book and just kind of sanded it down to make it a little more aerodynamic. It's like things that it didn't take out everything that didn't make sense, but like identified those things and made them flow a little bit better. Right. Although there's just straight up no pizza place in the book. That's a pretty significant addition to the movie. The parents are just normal parents, presumably like accountants or something like that. Not trying to live the pie in the sky dream of running your own pizza parlor. Yeah, how is it that Lenny gets to play at the dance? Because, like, they had a band already. Can he just come up and be like, hey, guys, give me a shot now? He's not real good either. I'm sorry, Lenny. You sound like generic, super bland, not even alt rock. It's just like basic adult contemporary pop rock. It's like really run of the mill. I I was not buying that Lenny was a future rock star here. (laughs) So that's the end of our story is Jamie seems content to live happily ever after in her more down to earth, authentic life. And does is languish in obscurity. She gets some of the stinky sea goop dumped on her. One wonders, did is saves the world ever get a movie adaptation? Is there a podcast in another universe talking about that young adult film? Ah, well, the book, I didn't even write this in my notes about the book. The book ends where she gets a call from her agent and says, guess what? It's going to be a movie. Dot, 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 dot. That's the end of the book. There's there's one chapter after that, but that is kind of left hanging in the, the novel. But we are led to believe it will live on. Oh, man. Well, the book is from like 2004, right? So they, I'll bet by the time the book was finished, they'd already sold the film rights. Oh, man. So maybe it was a secret allusion to the decom that was in the works. It was going to be made. I think the potential is there, at least. Yeah, do you have any thoughts about what would happen to these characters after the credits roll? I mean, I don't think it's unheard of for someone to make a splash and then live a moderately normal life after that. I mean, Brian, you won this key or whatever. You got Rosie O'Donnell to hand you something, and now you live a relatively normal life. And even Kay Panabaker, we haven't talked about it yet what she's up to today. So people who have been listening closely to this podcast will know from the Spy Kids episode that Brian's brother works at Disney World. Guess who else works at Disney World? Kay Panabaker. Not as a normal worker, but as a zoologist. She quit acting to study zoology, and now she works at the Animal Kingdom taking care of the animals. So I I feel like it's possible for someone to have a brief spurt of fame and then reclaim their own lives. Yeah. It's cool. And so now I'm finding out that I'm like two degrees of separation at most from K. Panabaker. So before our uh, Greatest Showman discussion, Dan was like, oh, I wonder if we could get Jenny Nicholson to cameo on the podcast. And I said, don't do that. If you did, it would be like on uh, the show Community when Troy runs into LeVar Burton, his idol, and he is just dumbstruck. He can't even talk. He's just in like horror shock because you can't disappoint. I I only wanted a picture. (laughs) You can't disappoint a picture. Um, so 
a K Panabaker cameo would not strike me quite the same way, but I'm I'm not saying it wouldn't get close. Yeah. I'm going to go out on a limb and say K Panabaker would probably not be too interested in appearing on the goods, but I guess you never know. <laughs> <laughs> yep. You're probably right. Much easier to get Jansen Panettiere. Nah, we got Janseled already. It's out. You got to realize that the future is not set in stone, Dan. We we don't know where we're ultimately going to end up. <laughs> have to keep the dream alive. And that's read it and weep. <laughs> so good things, bad things, Dan. Get this train back on track before we ultimately deliver our verdict, as we always do, and decide whether this film is good. So there were more things I did not like about this movie than did like. The thing that kept me hanging on was the freaking weird. She's got an alternate personality that is more and more real. And this movie is slowly becoming Fight Club as it progresses. I was digging that. Most of the plot points were pretty predictable as we went. And it's just like, I don't know, like nothing was sticking to my brain. I was like barely able to stay focused on the screen as the movie was going. It's just such frictionless, generic filmmaking. It's it's not horrible. I, there's a splashes of chemistry and charm here and there. But to me, it's right up there with the Sharpay movie in terms of being just a TV movie through and through that we've watched for this podcast. Yeah, I very much agree with you. The best thing this movie has going for it is the weird Tyler Durden angle. I think it adds a lot to it, as I said, that the person in that role is the real world older sister. I just think that's... The, the whole thing is psychologically compelling. And there's not a lot more that goes in the good things category, except for my own personal connection to the story, and especially at the time it came out. Because, yeah, there's a lot holding it back. Like, if we're just considering the Fight Club thing, Fight Club, Right Club, th it's an eight. Like, for me, I give that aspect an eight. But there's more to the movie, and those things rate lower, so... Uh, the big one for me is everything is so cheesy. Like, there's not a whole lot of strong acting, and there's, like, very little strong dialogue. And what really pulls me out of it is when we see that, like, everybody at the school is suddenly fans of the Is saga. The way that's shown is they're just walking around literally saying zap, zap to each other. Like, they're just hanging around in the school hallways, holding the book, and pointing at each other and going, zap! And it just seems like things that real humans wouldn't do. <laughs> you wouldn't walk up to someone and say, zap, zap, if they're in your way? I don't think so. Okay. Maybe there would be, you know, point A to B to C, a few developments before we reach that point, and maybe I'm just missing that context, but I don't think so. I think a way to remedy this would just be to give me a little more about what actually happens in this book and what is it that is appealing to the readers? Like, why do they get so into this new fandom? Yeah, that's a flaw for me in both the book and the movie is you don't know what the goddamn book is. It seems like, uh, I don't know, Captain Underpants level novel about these very aggressively typed characters acting in ridiculous ways. Nothing about it suggests literature or bestseller. It's, just, it, it, it's a girl doodling in her journal, making up ridiculous things. Why would any 
person want to read that? Why would that sell a hundred thousand copies or whatever to get to the top of the list? I was just kind of baffled by it. And I mean, you know, it's wish fulfillment. That's what it is. That's fine. There's a place for that. I've hit it from the other angle where I am happy to hand wave away dumb wish fulfillment things. If it's my own personal wish fulfillment and perspective, that's fine. But I was just rolling my eyes over and over again. The premise, the story, you know, it's it's cheesy. I was still smiling and laughing for a lot of it, but I was having trouble convincing myself that this was a good use of my limited discretionary time to be watching this movie. So <laughs> I'm curious to hear the final rating. I found it especially weird how into it the English teacher character is. Because, like you said, it, there's none of the hallmarks of this being, like, great literature. Uh, it doesn't really delve into the symbolism of what's what's in the text. But, like, the English teacher is reading it aloud to the class, and the segment about how hunky Marco Vincent is, and it, she's, like, getting hot under the collar. <laughs> it was weird. Another thing I didn't get, and I think is, like, briefly alluded to in both the movie and the book but just doesn't make any goddamn sense is it seems like she submitted a short story because it was read aloud in class, but it's also a novel that can be published as a full novel. So doesn't really make sense. Did she have to like write a whole bunch of extra stuff? I feel like we get a throwaway explanation in the movie. Isn't it like, oh, she had to go find her other journal pages and include them or something like that. I can't remember. Right. She has like additional notebooks that she pulls out. Yeah. So it seems like it was a subsection of it that got turned in. But I was a little surprised by that, too, because why not just have the whole thing in one document? Yeah, I don't know. Another uh, comparison point for me is Mean Girls that... In much the same way, Mean Girls climaxes with the star up on stage at a school dance, realizing that she has become the very thing she sought to destroy. That basically is what happens in this movie. She ends the movie up on stage, having won this big award, and realizes that it reflects her, not a victory, but a failure of her becoming the thing that she was preaching out against and that she was attempting to subvert. I feel like the movie could have done a little bit more with that. I mean, maybe I just have mean girls on the mind, but it seems like it got half the way there without actually realizing that it could have executed that into a compiling plot point. Right. Well, since you name dropped mean girls, that is an archetype. Obviously that's here in the film is the mean girl. We got Sawyer and her fictional counterpart, Myrna. I've always wondered like, that's not an experience that I've lived. It shows up a lot in, you know, books targeted at, at girls, about girls' experiences. And I just wonder, are are there really mean girls out there? Like, I, at the same time, I haven't lived, like, bulk and skull-style archetypal bullying. Uh, so I wonder, like, how much of that is a device of fiction? Or, or is that really a, a lived experience? that girls are always dealing with the new rule bulk and the skull needs to be mentioned in every episode of the goods. This is something that needs to happen going forward. No, I don't know. You're right. 
I mean, you're going to be raising some daughters. You are now. So maybe you'll find out. You'll have to report back. I don't. Yeah, I don't know how prominent the quote unquote mean girls are out there. I mean, one thing that could be deconstructed and this movie kind of attempts to do sort of is, well, we are all kind of fucked up in our own ways. She's got a point on that. But underneath, we're all people, even if we're all still kind of our messed up archetypes, too. It's like a less eloquent version of the ending speech from Breakfast Club. You know, we are a brain and a basket case and a uh, whoever. Are you, you remember, <laughs> you're picking up what I'm laying down. I could dig up the actual line. No, yeah, it's... A banner Christmas at the whatever his name is, Ben, I forget what it is. But no, I know the scene you're talking about where they all kind of acknowledge that they are as much a example of their stereotypes as they are a subversion of it under the core, which we learn to discover because the the lives that they live do in fact reflect those stereotypes. What we found out is that each one of us is a brain, and an athlete, and a basket case, a princess, and a criminal. Does that answer your question? There we go. I don't know if it answers my question. Not, not exactly profound even there, but decent enough movie. Maybe we'll talk about that someday. But right now we're talking about read it and weep, so let us know, Dan. Is it good? Is is good. So, as I was watching, I was not having the best of times, but I was also laughing at the absurdity of what we're seeing. And then it kind of escalates a little bit in the the final act with some of the weirder stuff on the fringes that I kind of enjoyed. I was flickering back and forth between a, this movie is just straight up not good to this movie is not quite not good, but it's just kind of wild and weird. And you know, there's, it ends with the characters dancing. It's a fairly charming cast. I'm going to give it a soft three. Not not good. Almost a two. I gave the Sharpay's Fabulous Adventure a three. I gave Last Day of Summer a three. I feel like if I'm going to give the kids focused TV movies that much of a pass in the past, then I probably should be consistent with that and land on a three for read it and weep as well because there there was enough that either charmed me or made me scratch my head that I had some fun. It was interesting, if not good. So there we go. What about you, Brian? Is read it and weep good? All right. I'm not too far apart from you. Maybe because I felt the personal connection to an extent, it comes in a little bit higher. I'm going to give it a four out of eight, a good ish. Like I, can't quite put it as high as zombies one maybe around the same point as zombies two it just doesn't deliver as much on like the visual front or as those movies do there's no musical numbers there's just not as much to this movie and what there is is often hollow and doesn't seem very realistic but i really seriously dig the like schizophrenic stuff going on as the character is taking over trying to break out into the real world that's mostly it my number one rewrite for this movie is actually not a rewrite for this movie but it's a rewrite for it's kind of a funny story 
where we see Kay Panabaker talking to her quote unquote alternate self is it'll come to you exactly it will come to you <laughs> in the uh, psych ward wing of it's kind of a funny story because it does seem like a legitimate psychological disorder here yeah I mean she gets close like we see Marco seeing her yelling at herself and then walking off like arm in arm with herself so it, it's a little odd but what have you got for us next Dan so, Brian, I'm curious if you know this bit of trivia off the top of your head. There is a general consensus for the first YA novel in the sense of the first novel that was published under the idea that it was for teenagers and not kids younger than that and also not adults. Um, do you know what that book is? I don't. What do you got? This is... A movie you've possibly seen. I'll be curious to see whether or not I've seen it. It is The Outsiders. Okay. No, I haven't. But I know that this is definitely up there on, like, summer reading lists. Yeah, so I read The Outsiders in seventh grade, and I loved it. I was like, oh my god, this book is so powerful, and so readable, and so targeted at people like me. And it connected with me, and I have not read it in the last man if it was seventh grade i would have been 12 so we're talking two decades solid since i read it and this movie has a very prominent adaptation and that is by the godfather well not the godfather himself but the guy who made the godfather francis ford coppola he made a in 1983 an adaptation of the outsiders oh wow and that's going to be the movie we're watching brian do you know who's in this movie i don't know anything about this movie this is exciting I didn't even know it was that early. When was the book written? Uh, the book was written in 1967. So wow. our topic next week is going to be the history of YA, especially the early history and like what were some of the proto YA books and what were some of the first YA books and how that kind of turned into a whole sub industry within publishing, a whole focus within the the publishing world. So this cast is kind of out of control I'm just going to spoil it for you here at the cast. Matt Dillon, Ralph Macchio, Patrick Swayze, Rob Lowe, Tom Cruise, Emilio Estevez. They're all in this movie, Brian. Oh, my God. That's a lot of folks. A lot of big names. We're going to be talking folks. We're going to be talking names. We're going to be talking outsiders next week on The Goods, a film podcast as Young Adult Month, Yam, drags on i was trying to come up with a pun there it didn't come to me tune in next time guys folks and names that's what we deliver here and you're sure to get some next time listen and weep <laughs> something like that yeah i hope you're not weeping listening to this 